Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Man, you gotta love the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Linda looks like, to me, she looks like a cross between Princess Diana and Olivia Newton-John. Am I right? She was stunning. Yeah, better. Um, Yeah. Lynn and I were married uh, 30 years ago today. So um, we were pretty excited just to kind of, yeah. So I wanted to... uh, at the top of the year, the first Sunday in the new year, I wanted, uh, you know, last Sunday we talked about prayer. These are things that are really important, uh, I think, to um, remind ourselves of. And today I want to talk about marriage. Uh, part of the reason why I want to talk about it is because it, it's, um, it's our 30-year uh, wedding anniversary and it's on my mind. But I think it's, uh, I think it's really, really foundational to the church, and to being a Christ follower. And I think everybody needs to be an expert in the, in the subject, and, uh, and we're not. Before we do, I want to just draw attention to something that's in the seat, okay? So pull this out right here. Everybody pick one of these up. This is the for life celebration and chili dinner thing. And I really want you to know about this. This is a really big issue in our day. And so our for life team... Um, has a table over here, and we'd really like you to sign up for this chili dinner thing because it's, um, it's addressing the issue of the sanctity of life. Uh, we're, ha- we're inviting all of our local partners to be there so you get to hear from them and how we can continue to be involved in this really critical um, issue of our day, uh, the sanctity of human life. And so this dinner celebrates it, so it's on January 20th, so you just got to Uh, A couple of weeks to sign up. It's $5 a person, $20 uh, max per family. So if you got a boatload of kids, 20 bucks. Okay, and it's um, chili. And all the profit goes to um, our partners and stuff. So uh, our partner pro love. So um, anyway, so this is good. And then on the other side are our classes. And and, uh, these classes really excite me this year. I think these are some of the best classes we've offered so we have a marriage class for him, for her. It's three sessions for you guys. You only got to go to three, and then your wife goes to the other three. Okay, so it's kind of gender specific. So it's really good. It's going to be a really good class. And then there's a sexuality and parenting class. Trey's teaching that class. It's uh, well known now as uh, Trey's sex class. And uh, it's, it's a really good class. And uh, well, I'm excited about that. And then there's a love and logic parenting class. Run for God. There's an awesome lady teaching that. And then financial peace and legacy journey. So um, these are really good classes that you should be a part of. Don't be that church that signs up at the last minute. Every church across the country does that. And we shouldn't be like every church across the country, just signing up at the very last moment. Okay. Come to the four life dinner thing. It's going to be really good. Um, So I'd really like you to, to be a part of that. So let's talk about marriage because... Marriage, um, you know, like I said, Lynn and I have been married 30 years, so I feel like I have some credibility to discuss it. I feel like I know some things, partly uh, because of 30 years now, and I think that our marriage is um, successful. 
All right, our marriage has been successful. Can you just turn off these? Oh, I, maybe they're off in the, the middle bank of lights up there. I don't know, it's kind of weird. feels weird, like I can't see. Um, the other thing is, is that I've done over 300 uh, weddings, okay? And, and so I've met with at least well over 300 couples just that want to get married, okay? And, and I've done their, their, their premarital counseling and things like that. That's just those, but lots of people come to me with marriage struggles and issues, which as it should be. And so I've met with hundreds, maybe thousands of people regarding that. So I, I, I get to see marriage from all kinds of angles, from all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds at all stages, all right? And so um, I've learned a lot of things about people in marriage and people's view and understanding of marriage. And this is what I have found is that almost I, I, I have always made it a habit of asking um, uh, people a, a, a core question, trying my best not to make people feel ignorant or, or, or dumb or so, in some way, but I always ask people if uh, they can tell me the purpose of marriage, right? It's, pur- it's purpose, it's core purpose. And here's what, um, here's what I find is that out of the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that I ask this question, only a handful ever get the answer right. Only a handful. Isn't that crazy? Um, and the people that get the answer right always shock me who they are. And the people that don't get the answer right always shock me who they are too, right? It's not something that people seem to know and can readily talk about and discuss with confidence, okay? And so I want to answer that question today. I want to do that. And, I, and, and uh, uh, amongst other things, I want to draw the truth out of the text. That's, that's like what I say to myself Every week when we, you know, and throughout the, uh, uh, a series of teaching on Sunday morning, I want to draw the truth from the text, draw it all out of it, and then just kind of go like this so that you can see it, you understand it, that there, it's not necessarily my words, it's God's words, it's his truth, and, um, and that's what we're going to do regarding marriage today. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. I think there's some really good things that God has to say. And, uh, and then we're going to do some, some other good things, I think, in this service as well. Uh, so if you got your Bible, Genesis chapter 2, I really want you to get your Bible out. That is a big deal. If you're going to see the truth, know the truth, understand the truth, you got to kind of wrestle with it yourself. Make some notes. Get your note thing out. I print those note things up for you because I, I think you should write some things down, underline stuff, all that kind of thing. Um, Here we go. Chapter 2 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, verse 18. We're going to look at chapter 1 as well, but let's just start right there. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what the man would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So if you don't like the names of the animals, it's it's man's fault. Adam biffed it on that. Some animals are like, what? Okay, so verse 20. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air and the living creatures of the field, but for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep. That was totally easy for him to do, right? And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now that, I, I think you should underline that part. He brought her to the man. And we'll get to that. Verse 23, then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken out of man. Taken out of man. Verse 24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his family and they become a new family or one flesh, okay? The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. So here's, uh, here's what I have come to know and understand, believe, and I think is absolutely true. The canyon, the chasm, the great divide between biblical vision of marriage and the human vision is and always has been huge, all right? Biblical vision and human vision of what marriage is and its purpose is huge. It's enormous. This is why it's in, in my experience and part of my tactic in helping people grow and understand marriage is to ask what is its purpose, okay? Because it, it, it's just a huge deep vision. Now, Jesus' vision of marriage is going to prove to us that it's not just a 21st century thing. It was a first century thing as well. It's just as deep and wide and big of a canyon then as it is now. Let's talk about Jesus' vision of marriage. When Jesus gave a glimpse of marriage that God willed for his people, all right, to the disciples, this is what the disciples say. So turn to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. Look at what Jesus says. Or uh, let's look at what the disciples say after Jesus gives them a glimpse of the marriage, of marriage through his eyes, all right? This is Jesus, the son of God, giving his disciples a vision, a glimpse of marriage. And in chapter 19, they respond like this. Verse 10, Matthew 19. Well, if this is the case of a husband with a wife it is better not to marry. Just, just look at that one verse. Jesus tells them about his vision of marriage, what, what God's will is about marriage. And then they go, well, then, then, then it's, it's obviously better not to marry then. Okay? Now, you know what's happening in the 21st century, Right? People say the same exact thing. Well, you know, marriage doesn't work. You, you, you know anybody that's like, well, it's better not to marry. Let's just not get married. People in droves, the stats for people not getting married, just shacking up together, just living together, just inside and outside of the church, their view is it's just better not to marry. Okay? I mean, it's enormous. I don't care if you're talking about teenagers or seniors. Same exact thing. I have more seniors come and say, hey, you know, more seniors just living together, not being married. You know why? Because in their view, the government punishes you somewhat, penalizes you financially if you do get married, you know? 
right? It's actually financially um, to your benefit not to get married as a senior, you know, if your spouse dies or it's just late, you know, because of social security and different things like that, right? So they don't. They're like, well, we're older and, you know, I mean, by now, I mean, it's kind of crazy how this is going. So now, now, in other words, this is what's happening right here in the first century with Jesus, right? Christ's vision of the meaning of marriage is so enormously, enormously different than the disciples, the guy, the disciples, right? They couldn't imagine it to be a good thing. They can't imagine it to be a good thing. This vision being good news was simply just outside of their, their categories of what's good. How about that? I, I hear people t- talk the same way today. If that was the case back then, with the sobering Jewish world in, in which they lived, how much more will marriage in the mind of God seem unintelligible to the world we live in? Where? Think of our world, where our world's main idol is self. Our world's main doctrine is autonomy. I mean, people just, you know, you walk through the lobby today because of the rain and the, 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 these things, you know, you get these, this. And people are like, ah, or they just, you know, they don't want to wear one of these, right? It's like, oh, I just want to be anonymous, right? Autonomy. Or um, think, think about this. our central act of worship in our culture is being entertained, honestly. And our main shrines for, uh, for, uh, are, are, are the phone, are the television, are movies, or Hollywood. And our most sacred genuflection is the uninhibited act of sexual intercourse. So when you put that together, a culture like that We'll find the glory of marriage in the mind of Jesus virtually unintelligible. I mean, we just cannot connect to it, right? So let's look at the biblical vision of marriage. I'm going to start with the assumption that our own sin and selfishness and cultural bondage makes it almost impossible to know the wonder of God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman. And this is this is now. Listen, I, if you're here and and you're widowed. If you're here or you're just single, if you're here and you're a teenager, if you're a child, if you're an elementary school person, if you're not married, if you're just a high school student, all right, and you're going, oh, marriage, and, you know, I'm not there yet, or I'm not, it's not time, I mean, if you're like, no, everyone, every Christ follower in the church, we need to be experts in understanding marriage because it is so central to who God is and his thinking and how he has designed everything Everybody needs to know and be an expert in marriage, whether, whether um, it's your first marriage, your second marriage, your third marriage, whether uh, you're doing it right or you're not, or you're struggling, or you're, I, I don't care where you are in your journey, the church, Christ followers need to be experts in this, okay? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just mentioning all this because I want to wake us up. I want, to, I want you to consider this. In the new year, I want you to consider a vision of marriage that's higher and deeper and stronger and more awesome than anything this culture or maybe you yourself has ever imagined. The greatness and the glory and the wonder of marriage is beyond our ability to think 
or feel without God revealing, without God illuminating, without God awakening us through the Holy Spirit. And the world cannot know. This world will never know and cannot know what marriage is without learning it from God. And how are people going to learn what marriage is from God without the Christ follower being an absolute expert and authority in it, okay? So, the natural man doesn't have the capacity to see or receive or understand the picture of what God has designed for marriage to be. So I'm hoping to help set you free. This is what I'm hoping for. I want to set you free from small, from, from, from small, culturally contaminated, self-centered, Christ-ignoring, God-neglecting, romance-intoxicating, intoxicated, non-biblical views of marriage. You want me to say it again? You, I, you're begging me to, I can tell. I'm hoping you to set you free from small, small. I think our view and our understanding of marriage for most people is small. It's super small. And I think it's culturally contaminated. Just think of what we do. Think of this. Christ followers do this. Married people can be in their bedroom, in this sacred place, in their bedroom, in bed, watching TV, and on the television, watching married people commit adultery and fornication, you know, all, all this kind of, uh, do all this stuff so they invite this into their bedroom while they're in bed and watch it all on TV, inviting that, and we, and we go, hey, well, I mean, it's TV, you know? Think about how, what we do with that, how small our thinking is about that kind of stuff. We get to watch married people commit acts of adultery and, and just, you know, all, all this stuff that breaks God's heart. And, we, and we, we can do it while in bed with our marriage partner in our bedroom. We just invite that stuff in all the time. We do that. All the time. So watch this. Watch this. Everybody, I don't care how old, how small, how young, everybody needs to know that our culture contaminates our understanding, our self-centeredness, our Christ-ignoring kind of modes of thinking, our God-neglecting, and we're, 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 we're romantically intoxicated with, we think that marriage is about romance. And there should be romance in it, but that's not got to do with its purpose. It all contributes to a non-biblical view of marriage. So marriage showcases God, this is my next point, the most foundational thing to see from uh, the Bible about marriage is that God is the architect of it. And the ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is for God's glory. So those are the two points that have to be made. So let's talk about God being the architect. First, God is the architect of marriage, at least and there's about four things that explicitly or implicitly are here in Genesis 2, 18. Marriage was God des designed. So that's, that's the first point. So God is the architect because it was his design in creation. So when you go back to chapter one, just flip back to chapter one in Genesis, look at what he does. In the creation of man as male and female, of course, this was the plan earlier, right? Genesis 1, 27, God created humankind in his own image. So he designed us in him, in, to, to look like him, to be like him. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But it's also clear here that the flow through of a thought through Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 and verse 13, it is God, not man. Get, catch this. It's God, not man, who decrees that man's solitude isn't good. All right? And it is God himself who sets out to complete one of the central designs of creation, namely woman and man in marriage. So God decides that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Not Adam going, oh, I'm a lonely guy. I need somebody. God decides this, okay? He says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a, uh, make a companion for him who corresponds to him. Don't miss that central and all-important statement. God himself will make a being perfectly suited for him. Wife. That's God's words, not mine. That's what he does right here. Then, then he does something just amazing. He parades the animals before him. That's why he does this. He parades all the animals before Adam so that he might see that there's no creature that qualifies as for him. This creature's got to be made uniquely from man so that she will be his essence and a human created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, so you read, right? In verse 21 and 22, so, that, so the Lord caused the man to fall uh, uh, the, 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 the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side, closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. God made her. So the text terminates in verses 24 and 25 with the words, they become a new family or one flesh, a new family. And the man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. In other words, it is all moving towards marriage. It's all moving towards marriage. So the first thing to say about God being the architect of marriage is that marriage was his design in creating male and female. Here's the second thing, or B, God gave away the first bride. I don't know if you realize that or not. God's the architect of marriage because God became the first father to give away the bride. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. He didn't hide her. He didn't make Adam look for her. He made her, then he brought her. In a profound sense, he had fathered her. She was his by virtue of creation. He gave her to the man in this absolutely new kind of relationship called marriage, unlike every other relationship in the world. So even today, you know, that tradition that we do that emulates this of the father giving away his daughter, the bride, to the groom. That's where we get this. God did this. Here's the third thing, or see, God spoke the design of marriage into his existence. So he, he's the architect, because God not only created the woman with this design, he brought her to the man like a father brings his daughter to her husband, but also because God spoke the design of marriage into existence, he did this in verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with a wife and they become a new family or one flesh. Who's talking in verse 24? Who's talking? The writer of Genesis is talking. And what did Jesus believe about the writer of Genesis? Jesus believed it was Moses. Luke 24, 
44, and that Moses was inspired by God so that what Moses said, God said. So listen carefully to Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. He, or Jesus, answered, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator, that's God, made the male and female, chapter 19, verse 5, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus quotes Genesis. Jesus said that Genesis 2.24 is the word of God, so God's the architect of marriage because he spoke the earliest design of it into existence. A man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So often, and I see this to, to brides all the time, you see, see we believe that that, that day, that wedding day, it's, it, our, our culture says it's your day. It's all about you. It's your special day. And it is a special day and it is awesome. And, and the bride is super important and all that kind of stuff. But actually, we're already seeing that God's the architect. God is the designer of all of this. And here's the next thing that I think people just really have no idea about. D, or the fourth thing. God performs the one flesh union, this making of the family, right? The evidence that God's the architect of marriage, becoming one flesh, which is at the heart of what marriage is, a union that God himself performs. Verse 24 are God's words of institution for marriage, but just as it was God who took the woman from the flesh of man, Genesis 2.21, it is God who in each marriage ordains and performs the uniting called one flesh, that is, not man's power to destroy. So this, impl this is implicit here in Genesis 2.24, but Jesus makes it explicit, actually, in Mark 10, 8 and 9. He quotes Genesis 2.24, Jesus does. And then he adds a comment that's ex it's explosive when it comes to marriage. He says, the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, this is Jesus, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Or what, how, how does the King James, let no one tear asunder. <laughs> right? Let nobody tear apart. So when a couple speaks their vows and consummates their vows in sexual union, it's not a man or a woman or a pastor or a parent who's the main actor. God is the actor here. God joins a husband and a wife into one flesh union. God does all that. God does that. Okay? The world doesn't know this, which is one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually. The world doesn't know this. And Christ followers act like they don't know it. Because... They, they don't a lot of times, which is one of the reasons why marriage in the church is not seen as, as awesome, as wonderful, as sacred, as all, it's any different than the world actually sees it. Marriage is God's. He's the architect because it is a one flesh union that God himself actually performs. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God does the joining together, you see. So if you sum all this up, the most foundational thing that we can say about marriage is that God's the architect. It is his. It's his idea. It is his design, not ours. 
Nothing about it is our idea. Okay, now, because it was his design and creation, because he personally gave away the first bride, because he spoke the design of marriage into existence, leave parents, cleave to your wife, become one flesh or a new family, and because this one flesh union is established by God himself in each marriage. So a glimpse into this awesome magnificence, uh, into the magnificence of marriage comes from seeing in God's word that God himself is the great architect. Marriage is his. And, and it's from him and through him. That's the most foundational thing that we can say. And now you're going to see that it is for him, actually. It's for God. Marriage is for God's glory. That's my second point. I only have two points. See? Everybody else thought that was funny. The most foundational thing here, God's the architect, but now the Bible, the ultimate thing is uh, to see from the Bible is that marriage is for God's glory. It's designed by God to showcase, so you hear me say this before, it's designed by God to showcase and display his glory in a way that no other event or institution can do this. Nothing else can do it like marriage. Showcase God and his glory. So the way you see this most clearly is to connect Genesis 2, 24 to Ephesians 5, 31. So turn to Ephesians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, Ephesians 5. You got to see this, all right? Because Paul reveals some things that people don't know and understand that really need to be understood. So 224, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife and they become a new family. What kind of relationship is this? How are these two people held together? Can they walk away from this relationship? Can they go from spouse to spouse? Is this relationship rooted in romance? Is it, is it all about sexual desire? Is it, is it about the need for companionship? See, these are the things where when I ask people, uh, what's the purpose of marriage? These are the answers they get. Is it cultural convenience? What is it? What holds it together? Is it about family? Is it about, you know, all, all these things, right? I'm going to say it's about the mystery of marriage. What's the mystery? That's my next point. The words unite with his wife and the words, and they become a new family. They become one flesh, point to something deep, point to something permanent. And what these words point to is marriage as a sacred covenant or promise or contractual promise rooted in covenant commitments that stand against every storm as long as we both shall live till death do us part words that we all say, right? But that's only implicit here. It becomes explicit when the mystery of marriage is more fully revealed. So Ephesians 5.31, watch this, watch this. For this, is, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will uh, be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Paul quotes Genesis as well in Jesus. And in verse 32, this mystery is great. But I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Here's where people don't know. See, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 31. He gives the all-important interpretation in verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage, here it comes, you ready? Marriage is patterned after Christ's promise, Christ's contractual covenant, promise, commitment to his 
church. It gets thicker. Christ thought of himself as the bridegroom coming for his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the wife of Christ. The true people of God. Paul knew his ministry was to gather the bride, the true people of God, who would trust Christ. <clears throat> and he says in 2 Corinthians to that church, 11, 2, he says, for I'm jealously for you. I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It's, it's rich. It's thick. Christ knew he would have to pay the dowry of his own blood for his redeemed bride. He called this relationship the new covenant. So when we take communion together, when we go to the Lord's Supper together and you get to the cup and the juice, Jesus says, every time you do this, you know, this, he says, this is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. The new promise in my blood. This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new promise. This is what Paul's referring to when he says that, the, that, that, that marriage is a great mystery. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ obtained the church by his blood and formed a new covenant, a new promise, promise with her, an unbreakable marriage. The ultimate thing that we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. You see that? That's why it exists, to glorify God, to showcase God, to display the essence of who God is, to be a big neon sign that points to God. And beyond that, it ex it, it, uh, now we see how marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. And the highest meaning and the ultimate purpose of marriage is to showcase the covenant relationship of Christ and his church. You see that? See what marriage is supposed to do? That's why marriage exists. If you're married, that's what the purpose of your marriage is for, to showcase that now. Christ will never leave his wife, right? Christ will never leave his wife. Marriage is not about most of the things we generally think it's about. It's about keeping covenant. It's about keeping promise. That's what it's about. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live. Sacred covenant promise. The same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. This is what we don't know. So now, let me say this. So look, there's, we have broken marriages all throughout Vail Christian Church and, and every church and in our culture. But if we never discuss this, if we never talk about divorce and remarriage in its proper context, then we can't do anything about it. We can't make any changes and we can't, well, all, all we do is we pass on uh, uh, to, to uh, our, our children and our teenagers and those around, we just pass on a, a poor understanding, a wrong understanding of, of, of marriage. Now, now look, I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't have time to get through uh, the whole counsel of God today, right? Because God is still, 
The essence of God is about forgiveness. We are most like God when we forgive. And God is about redemption and renewing and making all things new. All right, so if your marriage has been broken or if you're remarried or you've biffed it or you're in the middle of issues right now, hang on, hang on. I'm going to say this because you have to say it. It has to be said. Hang on. You ready? What makes divorce and remarriage so horrific, I believe, in God's eyes, it's not merely that it involves covenant breaking with the spouse, but it, it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. I know. That's hard to say. It's hard for me to say. I'm not here to offend anyone. I'm here to draw the truth from the text and go like this. God is still full of forgiveness and redemption. and He can restore and, and make all things new. All right. So if you've got some of that wreckage in your past, Christ is still on the throne. And he's all about making us new. But if we never discuss that and we never preach it or teach it, what are we supposed to t- do? How are we supposed to teach our children that that's not what God wants? Christ will never leave his wife, ever. There may be times of painful distance, tragic drifting away from God on our part, but Christ keeps his covenant forever. And marriage is a showcase of that. I, listen, I, I stay up at night worrying about, how do I say it? How do I say it? Why? Why do I worry about it? Because half of our marriages are more, more than half now, something like 40, between 40 and 60%, somewhere in there. It's crazy. Marriages inside and outside of the church end in divorce. The stats, at the seven-year mark is when most people get Get, get a divorce. Marriage is a showcase of the essence of who God is and Christ's love for the church. That's the ultimate thing that we can say about it. I want to say it today in a, in, a, in a bold way, but in a compassionate way, in a loving way, because we got a, we got a, we got a job to do. I also want to do something else. I'm going to ask Linda to come up here. Linda and I have been married for 30 years today, okay? And what we want to do is, I don't think we do this enough, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an opportunity in February. I, I would like to do it the Sunday before Valentine's Day. I don't know. I didn't even talk to the staff about this, so I could be messing up here. But I want to give you the opportunity to do this as well, those of you who are married, Linda and I are going to renew our vows right in front of you today. I just don't think we do enough of this. We don't celebrate marriage success. We don't showcase marriage, marriage success. And Linda and I, uh, our marriage isn't perfect, but it's good. And it's successful. Not because we're awesome people, but because, because God is at the center of, of, of our marriage. So we decided that what we'd do on our 30th wedding anniversary, I would preach on marriage and I would bring it. And then we renew our vows right in front of you. So um, Linda's going to go first. Here, we'll stand right here. So, um, uh, whew. you don't, you look, you're, you're stunning. No, my knees were weak 
well, the first time when, when the doors opened at Scottsdale Bible Church, you know, and it was like, you know, Linda walked through, I was like, oh, I thought I was going to collapse, right? You were stunning then, those big old puffy sleeves, you know, and that was just, <laughs> I was like, oh! I was, that was, uh, that was classic, that was awesome, I love it. All right, all right, so, so, so you go, you go first, I'll listen, I won't say anything. Yeah, just hold it up there closer. There are so many things that I love about you. I love your passion, your determination, your perseverance, the energy you have to maintain everything you do. I feel like you can outfish, outhunt, outhike everyone, including me, and I run. So it, 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 I think I can still outrun you, though. I think if maybe you took my class, you'd, you'd, you'd be catch up. You don't want me in your class. <laughs> you can. I'm sorry. And the passion you have to see Vale Christian Church grow spiritually, as well as me and the kids. Um, can be exhausting at times, but it's what makes you so amazing. You constantly inspire me to be a better me, to try harder, and to believe in myself. You know me better than anyone else in this whole world, and somehow you still love me. Thank you for loving me unconditionally every day. So for these things, I vow to be true to you, support you, to challenge you, and to also frustrate you annoy you and push your buttons for the rest of your life. I promise not to sweat the small stuff, like when you pile up all the dishes in the sink for me, or when you leave your socks and shoes laying around for me to trip over every morning. I promise to respect you and to listen to you and to your advice and even occasionally take it. I love it when you say to me, Linda, you need to listen to me. I know things. I promise to throw a little love your way when you are mad or stressed or both, even if it's at Costco or while driving in traffic. I promise to trust and value your opinions no matter what you say about the needs. I promise to stand by your needs and wants and make them a reality. I promise to love you for the little things you do, even though sometimes they make me want to scream, but it's because they are also a part of you. I promise to keep your life exciting and make our marriage our biggest adventure. I believe our best moments are still in front of us. And because of this and so much more, I still do. That's awesome. Um, I, um, I promise that I will not talk in the morning until 10 o'clock. I'll continue to do that. And, and I'll be quiet as much as I can. I just leave my shoes and socks so that it reminds you of me. <laughs> I will cook breakfast for you every Saturday morning till I die or I can't do it anymore. I promise. Right? Um, I promise to take you to Disneyland even though I don't want to go there. We're going. Because you love it. I will ride the ride in Small World and I will go see... High school musical parades and all that stuff. I promise I'll do it. I'll do it and I'll love it. I promise. Um, you make me a better person. Bye. So much. You make me a better pastor. 
our children worship you. Our children love you in a way that's it's, it's incredible. Our children um, cannot think of doing anything but honoring you. And that's a testimony to your amazing, uh, what an amazing person you are. You're patient and kind and uh, faithful. You're a great listener. You know that I just need to box once in a while and you're ready to put up your dukes and I love that about you. Um, At our wedding ceremony, I chose you to be my spouse. I promise to live with you according to God's holy word. And on that day, um, on that life-changing day, I promise to love you, to comfort you, to honor you, to keep you. I swore to stand uh, by you unwavering in my trust for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. At our wedding, I promised to give myself only to you so long as we both shall live. The pastor said, would you, will you take this one? And I did. Today, I choose again. I hope for at least 30 more years. I choose you to be my spouse. I promise to continue living with you according to God's holy word. On this kind of an ordinary day, actually, I promise to keep on loving you, to keep on comforting you with gentle care, to keep honoring and keeping you. Today, I'm standing by you, with you, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Today and every day, I give myself to you and only you, so long as we both shall live. No need to ask me, will you take this one? You know I do. Tomorrow and every day, every day God gives us, I will choose you to be my spouse. I will continue living with you according to God's holy word. Every day we share by God's grace, I promise to always love you, to always comfort you, to always honor and keep you. As long as I have breath, I will stand by you as your lifetime companion for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. I will always give myself to only you so long as we both shall live. Our great-grandchildren might ask, will you take this one? And you can count on this. I always will. I did, I do, I always will. I love you. So, so we did that three times. I won't make you do it. A fourth time. But this is what we want to do now. We want to, we want to go to the Lord's Supper, uh, these tables now. And I want you to think about that new covenant, that new promise. And, and, and maybe in the new year, a recommitment, a, a, a re-swearing of allegiance to the only one you should be allegiant to. I love Linda deeply, but I love her because it pleases God. And I know that Linda loves me because it pleases God. That's where our allegiance is. It's to God and to him alone. And all these other things fall into place because they are God's design. And I think that the only reason why Linda and I have a highly successful marriage is because at the center is God's heart, God's design. He's the architect. And we do our very best to showcase the essence of who he is. The communion table, the Lord's Supper table, showcases the essence of who God is too, right? And the new covenant of his blood, this new promise. 
This new promise that God gave uh, uh, his son Jesus. And Jesus gave his life for us. He laid down his life for us to purchase us. To purchase us. That's what we're celebrating. Will you bow your head with me? Thank you, Lord, for these moments where we can have a reset, a renewal. That's what the Lord's Supper table is about. That's why you give it to us. A reminder, a memorial, a celebration of the essence of who you are. So as we go to the table now and take the bread and the cup, we pray that we might do it in a worthy manner and it might showcase and honor you as we do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you to stand one last time with us. I have a prayer here that I want to read together. It's a prayer of commitment. It's, listen, like I said, God is all about making things new. But, but this prayer, I think you can, everybody pray in the new year as a way of confessing and vowing and, and renewing our commitment to God. Will you read this together with me? Our Father. Say it with me. Our Father, you are a covenant-keeping God. You are faithful to your promises and you never fail us. Thank you for your lasting devotion to us. Forgive us for the times when we fail to please you, even when our intentions are good. Forgive us for our broken promises, our wandering hearts, our covenant unfaithfulness, and our spiritual indifference. Convict us by your Holy Spirit to increase our commitment to pray to you today. We want to obey you out of deep gratitude for all that you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to pursue you with our whole heart. We want to worship, gather, give, and serve you alone. You are worthy. Amen.